we have a treat for us. My friend and your friend, Elliot Ritzema, um, fellow Regent grad with me and mm -hmm. a good brother, lives right over in the Columbia neighborhood, works at Faith Life. Many of you know him already. Um, I'm so excited, Elliot, for you to come share the word. So would mm -hmm. you give him a big welcome and let's be listening. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. It's always good to be here. Uh, I think it's been about a year since I was here last. Um, it always, uh, whenever the weather starts getting nicer, I can always expect, expect a call from, from Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't dread coming anymore now that it's, it's air-conditioned. Um, so as I was preparing this sermon, I kept on thinking of a, a novel that I read a few years back. Uh, it was by a, a guy named Matt Michelados, who, at least at the time that he wrote the book, was on staff with Campus Crusade, now known as Crew, in uh, the Portland area. And uh, this novel begins with Matt, he, he is a character in his own novel. He's sitting in a Portland cafe with Jesus. And Jesus kind of has his, his robes on and his sandals, and they're just uh, enjoying each other's company. But then uh, another, uh, guy who, uh, another guy comes up who uh, says he's a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and, and asks to, to sit with them. And as they have a little uh, conversation, this, this uh, third guy becomes increasingly uncomfortable with the things that, that Jesus is, is saying until eventually he gets up and he punches Jesus in the face and Jesus runs out into traffic. And uh, so Matt is understandably shocked. Why did you just punch Jesus in the face? And this guy who they, he just met said, that's not Jesus. That's your imaginary Jesus. And I should know, I'm the Apostle Peter. So the name of the book is My Imaginary Jesus. And the rest of the book is taken up with Matt's quest to find the real Jesus. Uh, and he comes across many other imaginary Jesuses. Uh, he comes across hippie Jesus and uh, legalistic Jesus and uh, political Jesus of both the conservative and liberal varieties. And um, uh, the, the Jesus that he is most drawn to is Portland Jesus, who loves all the things that people in North Co Northwest culture love. He rides his bike. He drinks the right kind of coffee. Uh, he, he's really enamored with Portland Jesus. But in the end, he has to let him go and, and keep on uh, looking for the real Jesus. And I was thinking of this book, My Imaginary Jesus, this week, because... Sometimes both Christians and non-Christians have ideas about who Jesus is that don't necessarily come from him. And this is not anything new. Uh, back a hundred plus years ago, there was a biblical scholar named Albert Schweitzer who wrote about uh, what was then known as the quest for the historical Jesus, all of these biographies of Jesus, lives of Jesus that were being written in the, the 19th century. And he said, he kind of summed them all up, uh, and he said that they looked a lot more like autobiographies than biographies. They looked a lot more like the people who were writing them, uh, who were usually uh, German scholars, 
uh, of the, the 19th century than, um, than the actual Jesus who lived in the first century. And if you want to go back even farther than this, uh, I would say that this happened as well when it came to the, the early uh, Gnostic Gospels of the, the second and third century, uh, where people were writing several uh, hundred years after, after Jesus lived and, and after the, the uh, canonical Gospels, the Gospels that we have in the Bible, were written. But they kind of make Jesus out to be a, uh, a wise Gnostic teacher. And uh, that's part of the reason uh, that it's an imaginary, the fact that it's an imaginary Jesus is part of the reason why I think that these kinds of uh, quote-unquote lost gospels continue to have such popularity today, uh, where you can turn on the History Channel around Easter and, and see, see scholars talking about them. We like to project ourselves and our desires uh, things that we like and things that we dislike, onto to Jesus. And we look to these imaginary Jesuses for inspiration, but the problem is that they are powerless to help us in any real way. And in the end, they actually cause frustration with God because the, these imaginary Jesuses give us ideas about what God ought to be doing that don't come from him. They don't help us to deal with reality uh, the way that God created it. And so, as we look at this text from Luke 7, I think we'll find that the real Jesus is more offensive, but also better than our pre preconceived notions about him. And if we want to change our lives for the better, we need to see him as he is. And this passage shows us three ways to respond to the real Jesus. Now I'm going to uh, read it for you, so please rise again for the reading of the scripture on which the sermon is based. This is Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, and he quotes from Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, 
because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I, prepare, or can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word as uh, preserved for us and passed on to us uh, by your servant Luke. I pray that you will open our hearts to what you have to say to us through it by your spirit and that you will uh, uh, give me the, the right words to say that, that uh, point to you. Amen. Please be seated. So, as I mentioned before, I read the scripture, the very, very long scripture. Thank you for standing up for the entire, uh, entire thing. <clears throat> this passage contains three responses to the real Jesus. And I would say two are explicit in the text, and uh, one is more implicit. The first is John's response of doubt. The response of this generation, as Jesus calls them, the, the Pharisees and the the experts in the law, their response of unbelief, and the response of faith that Jesus asks for and that Luke is calling his readers to. So, the first response to the real Jesus is uh, John the Baptist's doubt. So, at the beginning, as we heard from the uh, earlier scripture reading, John the Baptist is in prison. His faithfulness to Jesus, his faithfulness to what God has told him to, to say and to do, has landed him in prison. And so John was naturally having doubts about who Jesus was for two main reasons. Because his life was going so badly, and because Jesus's ministry didn't necessarily meet John's expectations. He, Jesus was not doing the things that John expected the Messiah, the one who was coming, to do. And again, as we heard from the scripture reading earlier, John may have been expecting the Messiah to bring judgment on evil right away. There's all this talk about unquenchable fire and chaff being thrown into the oven and burned up. Um, John was expecting this to happen right away when the, the Messiah came. And so when he sees Jesus doing all the things that Jesus is doing, uh, healing and preaching, and uh, there's a little bit less fire than maybe John was expecting, then uh, John was um, understandably uh, a little bit uh, dismayed or confused about what Jesus was doing. So John sends two of his disciples to ask, are you the one who is coming, the Messiah, the, the uh, anointed king, or should we look for someone else? And the interesting thing about the interesting thing about John's question is that John kind of assumes that uh, there that there will be a one that he is going to uh, give his life in service to some person to something. And I think this says something about the the human heart that we are always looking for a, a one of some kind something that will make our lives make sense, that 
will um, someone for someone whom we can can serve a king uh, even though we we don't live in a society where we have kings anymore and if our one is something else besides Jesus then when we come to Jesus we will come to him assuming that we already know how our lives ought to go uh, we come to the real Jesus with conditions with demands but John doesn't do this John was smart he didn't ask why he was in prison he didn't ask why, um, why bad things happened to good people like him. Uh, he just asked if Jesus was the one because he knew that he couldn't understand himself and his, uh, his role in the world, his identity, until he understood who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. So Jesus responds in verses 21 and 22 by doing things that present himself as fulfilling prophecies from the book of Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 29, 18 and 19, 35, 5 and 6, and 61, 1, which Jesus had earlier quoted when he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth uh, and uh, proclaimed to uh, all of the, the people in the synagogue what he was doing in his ministry. He says, in short, this is what will happen when God's kingdom come comes when God's anointed king comes. But the interesting thing is, and the, again, it's the reason why it's understandable that John the Baptist was confused, is because these prophecies that Jesus presents himself as fulfilling are often side by side with prophecies of judgment. So, for example, in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, we read, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This is uh, what Jesus is referring to. But then, backing up a few verses, starting in verse 3, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And the same thing happens with Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where Jesus uh, says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And what Jesus does not quote is, To proclaim the year, or he does, he does say, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance, for our, of our God. He leaves the, the day of vengeance out. So what Jesus is saying when he responds to John is that he is the one, he is the Messiah, he is the king that has, uh, has come to, to inaugurate the kingdom of God, but he is not coming in judgment right away, and he doesn't get John out of prison. And he does this because in Jesus' ministry, the, the, the kingdom is still in the process of breaking in. He doesn't bring judgment right away because uh, he is still on the way to the cross to suffer judgment himself on, the, on behalf of others. So his response is, in, in short, I will bring justice to the world, but hold on, I'm doing something else right now. First, I'm bringing good news before I bring um, judgment. But 
Starting in verse 24, Jesus doesn't blame John for responding in doubt. He says that John was a great prophet. He was the greatest prophet of all the ones that uh, Israel had experienced. He just suffered for doing the right thing, and anybody is vulnerable to doubt in that situation. And when I think about John's response of doubt and our own responses of, of doubt sometimes when we're, we're faced with situations where uh, we're suffering or we see suffering uh, and we can't quite make sense of it, we should do what John did and go directly to Jesus uh, and ask him uh, what, uh, what's going on, what he has to say about himself. Because doubt is often talked about in, in negative terms uh, by people who are sitting in church like we are, but uh, it can be good if it can help us in our search for meaning. But we can't stay in a place of doubt. We can't embrace doubt as uh, our philosophy of life. We have to use it in order to move on to something else. Because the existence of God and the identity of Jesus is not something that we can, uh, that is just an open question that we can leave, leave open uh, for our entire lives. Because not to decide is to decide. It's kind of like uh, putting off your decision to get in shape. Well, I, I'll just decide about that later. You know, I'll, I'll join a gym later. But uh, in the meantime, your body is deciding for you what you're doing. Um, it's almost like we're, you're a, an arrow that was launched when you were born, and you're going to continue going through the air toward a target, uh, whether or not you decide what that target is consciously. So you can't stay, even though a doubt is, is often a good thing, uh, you can't stay in a place of doubt. But it, doubts are something that are understandable, um, but that you can bring to Jesus. Because the truth is that the real Jesus, uh, not our imaginary Jesuses, can handle our biggest questions, uh, and including our doubt. So if we ask him, are you the one I've been looking for, he will reveal himself to us by his spirit. He may not answer all of our questions, but he will show himself to be the answer that we're looking for. He may not get us out of prison, um, or our metaphorical prisons, or bring justice right away, but he will show himself to be trustworthy. And that was my story growing up. I grew up in church and um, uh, went to a, uh, a, an old Baptist church in North Carolina, uh, which is where I, I met Jesus encountered him for the first time. But then when I was a teenager, like many teenagers, I was uh, not really sure if I wanted to do this Christianity thing. And um, it was complicated by the fact that my parents divorced when I was uh, about 12 years old. And I, uh, in part, I was, was angry at, uh, at uh, many people in the church because I thought that they should have done more than they did to, to prevent that from happening. Uh, I was wondering where, uh, where the people of the church were. Uh, so, there was a time when, especially in my later teenage years, when I got to be more independent, I got to uh, uh, be able to, to drive myself around or, or not drive myself uh, places. I stopped going to church for a while, and 
Um, but then, you know, shortly before I went to college, uh, sometime during my, my senior year of high school, uh, I decided that I, I really did need to decide whether I was going to completely throw, throw aside this, this uh, Christianity thing or, um, or go more deeply into it. And by that time in my life, I had had a real experience of Jesus. Uh, and I did, I, I knew him. And what led me to not leave Christianity behind, even though I was still frustrated with uh, many of the experiences that, is, that I'd had in church, was that I couldn't leave Jesus. Even though I didn't necessarily know how the early chapters of Genesis related to science, and I didn't know why bad things happened to good people. Um, I couldn't leave Jesus. He had shown himself to be trustworthy, uh, even though he didn't necessarily answer every single one of the, the questions that I had. So that's the first response that we see in this passage. John's response of doubt, but it's a good doubt, a doubt that leads to clarification, that leads John to turn more fully and more deeply to Jesus. The second response to the real Jesus is unbelief, which we see in the, uh, the latter verses of the, the passage. So God was at work in both the ascetic ministry of John the Baptist and the joyful ministry of Jesus. But, we see in uh, verses uh, 29 and 30, those who believed in John also believed in Jesus, even though they were so different. And those who disbelieved in John also disbelieved in Jesus. They had the response, not of doubt, but of uh, what I would call unbelief. And I would say unbelief is different from doubt in that uh, the difference is especially with the kind of doubt John expresses, uh, you can at least acknowledge that you are not competent to be the ultimate judge. You know that there are things that, that you don't know. But with unbelief, you see yourself as the judge. And un so unbelief is not just the, the lack of belief. It's the presence of something else. And that something else is a desire to run our own lives on our own terms, which is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, how, the, how they responded to, to Jesus and John as well. So, Jesus kind of gets at this response of unbelief by telling a parable about kids calling out in the marketplace. And the kind of two biggest events, uh, the, the two times that, that the average first century kid would see a ton of people gathered together were weddings and funerals. And so they would uh, play at weddings and play at funerals when they're, when they're running around uh, among themselves. So they're calling out, and the point of all this, this calling out that Jesus uh, mentions in verses 31 and 32 is that some people are offended that John calls people to repentance. He calls for a dirge, uh, as, as if he were at a funeral. And then they're offended later when Jesus ate and fellowshiped with wild people and outcasts. They would say that John is 
too harsh. But Jesus was too inclusive. John played a dirge, and they didn't want to, uh, to mourn to his dirge. And then Jesus was playing a happy tune, and they didn't want to dance. And their problem, as I mentioned, was unbelief. It was not just a lack of evidence. There was something else there. There was a, a resistance. They were hanging on to their authority to live the way that they wanted to. So the problem isn't the tune that was being played. It was the fact that it was not their tune. The real reason was that they wanted to be in charge. And unbelief can, uh, can happen to, or anybody can, can be, um, have a response of unbelief. You can be the smartest person in the world and still make the choice of unbelief. I read this, uh, this story in a book by uh, John Ortberg once where there were three people in an airplane. Uh, there was a pilot and a Boy Scout and the smartest man in the world. And the plane is going down, and there are only two parachutes. The smartest man in the world turns to the pilot and the Boy Scout, and he says, guys, I'm sorry, but I'm the smartest man in the world, and it would be a much greater loss to the world if I were to die than if you two died. So I'm taking this parachute, and I'm leaving. So he jumps out. And then the pilot and the Boy Scout look at each other, and the pilot starts panicking. But the Boy Scout says, relax, Captain. The smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. <laughs> Anybody can have a response of unbelief. It, ha it has nothing to do with how intelligent you are. The problem of unbelief is that if Jesus is Lord, then I can't be, and I don't want that. The issue is authority, and we can always interpret the data, especially if we're smart, to preserve our authority. Uh, C.S. Lewis's great book about heaven and hell called The Great Divorce really gets at this when he talks about how uh, those people in, who are in hell in the story don't want to leave. They don't like heaven. Uh, they've heard what it's like, and it's not their kind of place. Um, they've convinced themselves through their unbelief that the place that God wants them to be uh, is the place that's worse for them. They would prefer to be in hell. And unbelief, the thing about unbelief is that it will contradict itself from generation to generation. Uh, in some generations, you hear people say that, oh, I can't believe in Christianity, it's too emotional. Or in another generation, you'll say, oh, I can't pe be uh, a follower of Jesus, it's too, uh, it's too much in your head, it's too rational. I need something that's more in the heart. Uh, un unbelief will find any excuse to not believe. But if we turn away from the real Jesus in unbelief, we are deciding consciously or unconsciously, to build our lives on something else, another one, as, uh, as John mentioned earlier in the passage. And that could be our career, our accomplishments, our family, our freedom to do whatever we want, and we prefer our imaginary Jesuses because they feel safer to us than the real Jesus. But these ones will not uh, love us like Jesus. They'll promise to solve our problems, but in the end, 
that will take our humanity from us. So those are the first two responses. There's doubt and there's unbelief. And then the, the third response to the real Jesus is seeing the offensiveness of the real Jesus. It's impossible not to see the offensiveness of the real Jesus, the scandal of the real Jesus, and then pushing through that and trusting him. So if imaginary Jesuses can't help us, then how do we get captivated by the real Jesus? How do we see him as better than our images of what he's like? And there are three different sections of this passage, and Luke ends each of these three sections with hints uh, at how to do this. Uh, In verse 23, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. The word stumble is scandalizo, from which we get the word uh, scandalize. Blessed is the one who's not scandalized on account of me. Uh, So we have to be open to seeing how offensive the real Jesus is. Blessed are the ones, Jesus is saying, who have seen his offensiveness, but who have come to terms with it. We know often when we have an imaginary Jesus, when our emotional responses to him are pretty mild. We have a kind of vague positive feeling about an imaginary Jesus, or we could have a vague uh, displeasure about the imaginary Jesus. But the real Jesus is always uh, scandalizing people. He's uh, causing uh, offense in people. He's causing uh, great love, great devotion, and he's causing people to be terrified. Uh, And he's causing people to to hate him. The real Jesus is uh, offensive. He's not uh, as mild as our imaginary Jesuses can be. And we create these imaginary Jesuses because we want to believe in our own uh, potential and our ability to, to run our own lives. They're often just a little bit uh, nicer than we are. Um, we have an imaginary Jesus because uh, we want Jesus to come alongside us for a little bit of inspiration, but the real Jesus will not allow this. We can't run away from how uncomfortable he makes us. So that's one one way that we can uh, see the offensiveness of the real Jesus. The second is we have to embrace our uh, position as the poor and the least, uh, as no better than the tax collectors, the outcasts of, uh, of society. Because if the real Jesus is offensive, and he's meant to be offensive, and he intends to be offensive, uh, to call us to himself, uh, and his, that his claims about himself are exclusive, um, we have, to see, we have to see ourselves as the kind of people for whom that offensiveness is actually good news. And Jesus says in verse 28, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. And that's not a, a shot at John, but it's, uh, Jesus is saying that uh, after his death and resurrection or with his coming, uh, we can have the Spirit of God in us. So John points to the reality of the coming of the kingdom, but after Jesus, we can live in that reality. And Jesus's death on the cross is offensive because it tells us that we are so wicked that we can only be saved by grace. We are completely dependent on it. And this is offensive to human pride. It was offensive to the the Pharisees and the, the experts in the law because we want to be the greatest. We, want, we don't want to be the least, but in the kingdom, 
you have to see yourself as the least before you can become the greatest. You have to become the least before you can become the greatest. And that was what was behind the responses of unbelief of the Pharisees and tax collectors, that they did not see themselves as the least. They did not see themselves as the kind of people for whom Jesus' message was good news. And, uh, Chris? <laughs> so, the third thing that we see about how we can see Jesus' offensiveness from this passage is that we have to see the wisdom of God behind Jesus' offensiveness. Jesus says in verse 35, Wisdom is proved right by her children. And uh, wisdom is uh, personified in the Bible, especially in Proverbs 8. And in the the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus himself as the wisdom of God, God's wisdom personified. And wisdom, you could say, is living within, uh, the ability to live within reality as it is, as it is. It's living with the grain of the universe, understanding uh, the way the universe works. And uh, Christianity, following Jesus, is the only religion that fully accounts for reality because it's incredibly pessimistic about how sinful we are. The dirge that it plays in the marketplace is the dirgiest of dirges. It's extremely sad. Um, it tells us some very bad news about our, our ability to, to change. But at the same time, it's incredibly optimistic about the power of grace to change us. Its dance of joy is the most joyful. Uh, and we have to see those things side by side and understand that the real Jesus, in his offensiveness, makes sense of reality the way the world was created. We can, only, we can only meet the real Jesus when we see ourselves as broken people and realize that Jesus loves broken people. The real Jesus is going to frustrate us sometimes, but an imaginary Jesus is going to completely lack the ability to change our lives. When we meet the real Jesus, we find that he loves the real us, and he has good news for the real world. And then once we've been made uncomfortable by the real Jesus, once we've seen his scandalousness and we've seen uh, how offensive he is to us when we want to uh, just invite him into our lives for a little bit of a pep talk, when we see how uncomfortable he really makes us, he's going to then empower us to do uncomfortable things. And you see this in the lives of uh, so many great saints, that they have this uh, experience, sometimes early in life, sometimes later, of uh, a real confrontation with Jesus, and a real understanding of their own inability to do anything on their own, but at the same time, uh, an understanding of how great God's love for them has been, and how great God's sacrifice for them has been. And once you understand yourself through that 
lens, once you get the offensiveness of Jesus in, uh, in saying how bad you are, but how, uh, how wonderful it is to be forgiven, and you truly understand yourself as fundamentally being loved by God, and that it does, your uh, identity is, does not go up and down based on how you perform on any given day, it doesn't matter to you what other people think. An imaginary Jesus would steer you away from discomfort, but the real Jesus helps you to face reality with courage since he has overcome the worst that the world has to offer. And as we transition to communion, it's a wonderful thing to, to think about as we, uh, as we take communion that um, the real Jesus is scandalous. He took the meal of Passover that the Israelites had uh, celebrated for uh, over a thousand years, and he made it about himself. And uh, he didn't tell people that they uh, just had to keep trying a little harder, that they just had to obey the law a little bit better, but that they were completely incapable of doing what God required. They were completely incapable of being holy. And so he took all of their failures on himself. So when we take this bread and we drink this cup, that's what we remember. We remember our inability to do it on our own. And we remember uh, Christ's ability, the real Christ's ability, not the imaginary Jesus' ability, to do it for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are real. That in spite of the many ways in which we try to uh, tame you, both consciously and unconsciously, that uh, you are scandalous and you won't allow yourself to be uh, put into the boxes that we like to put you into. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will help us to see uh, our great need for you, whether we've been uh, following you for years or uh, whether we are uh, just looking into uh, what following Jesus is all about. Um, Lord, I pray you'll help us to to see that we are uh, poor, we are outcasts, we are uh, people for whom uh, your grace and your forgiveness really can be good news. Help us to let go of our ways that we try to uh, justify ourselves and uh, uh, help us to, to meet you again at this table. Amen. <laughs>